Welcome to the latest Stevenson Harwood Employment Podcasts. I'm Paul Reeves, a partner and head of employment law here at Stevenson Harwood. At this time of year, most December year-end companies are actively starting to address bonus payouts for 2022 and bonus terms for the forthcoming year. So in this episode, we will be discussing some common issues and pitfalls which arise with bonuses and providing some guidance on dealing with those and special points of interest that have recently arisen. And finally, we'll talk about some of the issues for 2023. I'm delighted to be joined today by two of my incentives colleagues who deal with our clients' employee bonus schemes, share plans and employment tax issues. Nicholas Stretch, who is a partner and head of the employee incentives team, and Desiree DeLima, associate in that team. Both Nicholas and Desiree joined Stevenson Harwood in 2022, so it's a warm welcome to you both, not only to this podcast, but also to Stevenson Harwood. Nicholas, if I could start with you, when paying out bonuses for 2022, are there any concerns that clients should start to consider? Thanks, Paul, and great to be joining you. So to dive in straight away to answer your questions, what are the key concerns with paying out bonuses for 2022? The three biggest issues we see are how do you interpret the performance criteria and it never takes long when discussing bonuses to get to this subject, the application of discretion in some form, as well as particular issues that arise for levers, although we'll address these later. As I'll make the point repeatedly throughout, prevention is better than cure though, and a lot of these issues turn on the drafting and communications to employees at the outset. Sometimes, by the time bonuses come to be payable, it's just too late to do anything, when more targeted drafting at the outset might have given the flexibility or result required. Turning to performance criteria first. To be transparent, most bonuses nowadays have moved away from complete discretion determining the quantum of what's received, to putting in some thresholds and targets, whether team or company related or sales or commission. And the detail of that can be challenging for HR specialists and even more so for lawyers. Clearly, year-end and other performance data must be drawn up fairly, but inevitably there are decisions to be taken on whether items are included or excluded, other factors such as accounting policies or currency conversion, or where unanticipated points arise. And despite all the pressure for smart objectives, The reality is that many targets are subjective or have a high degree of subjectivity in them. While it's now rare for employers not to give themselves the right to take decisions on these supplementary issues at their discretion, I'm sure that all those listening to this podcast will know that, whatever the drafting, an employer's discretion is not unfettered. It simply can't do what it likes, and decisions must be taken fairly and reasonably. Which is not to say that a court will intervene and substitute its own view, but an unreasonable decision at a range is challengeable. If the terms of a bonus are met, the employer needs good reasons to change that result downwards, or there will be a claim for breach of contract or a grievance pursued. It's important that there is a backing paper trail for decisions too, and here is where HR come in to make sure that the key decisions are understood and minuted. However, if an employer has discretion as to the path to reach the bonus decision, then a court will not usually interfere so long as that decision is not irrational, and the employer has followed a fair process to get there in accordance with the implied duty of trust and confidence. Thank you, Nicholas. Yes, that's right. And the limits on how far an employer can go and the need to be precise up front was particularly shown in a case reported recently about bonuses linked to sales in a pharmaceutical company. This company had benefited from an exceptional sales performance because of the COVID pandemic. So, Desiree, turning to you, 
I'd like to bring you in on the talk. Could you talk a bit more about this case? Sure, Paul. Mars Group was a supplier of diagnostic products for clinical laboratory testing. The employee was a sales manager covering Scotland and the north of England. A bonus scheme for 2020 said that if her annual sales target was achieved, all sales over this amount would attract a 5% bonus. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, but after the target had been set and notified, Mast Group received a large order from NHS Scotland for the supply of various COVID diagnostic machines and tests. This resulted in company sales hitting an all-time high, including in the relevant area for the employee's bonus scheme. As the employee surpassed her annual sales target, she claimed that she was entitled to receive a very large bonus in accordance with the terms of the bonus scheme. However, Mars Group disagreed, claiming that the scheme wasn't designed to cover this set of circumstances and produce a windfall, and instead decided to terminate the old scheme and replace it with a new scheme, which limited the quantum of the bonus. Mars Group argued that the original bonus scheme, if properly construed, extended only to sales where the employee achieved the sale in question through her own efforts, although the bonus scheme did not explicitly say this. The employee disagreed that there should be any such restrictions in the absence of express wording, and she succeeded. Accordingly, the court held that the employee should receive a bonus of virtually all she claimed. There was crucially no wording in the bonus scheme which allowed changes to be made to it in the event that unforeseen circumstances arose or external factors came into play. And crucially, there was no cap. And also, there was no requirement that personal efforts had to be the cause or the link to attributable sales. Thank you, Desiree. The takeaway is clearly upfront drafting is particularly important. What additional guidance could you offer clients? Well, like it or not, while employment contracts are generally very centralised in an organisation and consistently drafted, bonuses tend to be much more loosely drafted and often not monitored in the same way. They range from being awarded under a detailed central bonus plan, which has one advantage that the employee can receive key terms in a separate document and focus on that, alternatively can be drafted on the back of an envelope with little or no HR input. We see and defend all sorts. However done, key terms we like to see are that a bonus payment or bonus terms for one year are no precedent for the future, or indeed, if this is possible, that there is no obligation to offer any bonus at all in following years. In the event of any doubt about inclusion of an item when working out the bonus amount, the company can decide. Caps on the amount available to avoid unforeseen circumstances. The caps can always be waived. Bonus terms can be changed mid-year, before payment, to reflect new and additional unforeseen circumstances. And whether there is any individual performance or corporate performance that must be or can also be taken into account. It is not normal for annual bonuses to be paid early when there is a corporate event, but that may be appropriate in certain circumstances, and it will certainly be appropriate to reserve discretion to change targets, etc. For joiners and leavers, clarity around prorating, whether of the amount 
or the target. If leavers can receive any bonuses at all, and when a leaver has to be in active employment, by that I mean not serving notice or on garden leave, we usually set out good and bad leaver terms. An employee who is suspended or under disciplinary terms should at the very least have payment paused until circumstances are decided. And, while this may be pushing what employees would find acceptable or is wanted in a particular business, we often ask for repayment terms if the targets were in fact not met, the employee is found to have committed misconduct, or if the business goes under in the next three years, so-called malice and clawback provisions. None of this makes bonus terms any shorter, but often the broadest discretion is the most effective, and so quite often this can be pithily captured. Finally, you should make sure that any terms are not undermined by communication, including verbal ones, around the bonus at the time of implementation. This could be done by saying the comms are of no legal effect. No key term should be in the comms and not incorporated in the bonus scheme. It is also good practice to require an employee to acknowledge that he or she agrees to bonus terms, but that is not always possible. Thanks, Desiree. So, Nicholas, turning back to you, what particular issues are you seeing for this year? Well, all of what we've mentioned up until now will always be relevant in any year, but yes, there are some particular developments this year worth mentioning. Overall, of course, with the economic climate as it is as the backdrop, a lot of bonuses may not be paying out, or there may be lower bonuses overall particularly in investment banking and asset management, which has generally had a rough year. And if this is like anything in previous downturns, this will give rise to disputes, particularly redundancies start. Companies may be in the difficult position of having to stand on and defend technical interpretations or defining a long tradition of custom and practice in order not to pay bonuses or having to target them more effectively. Where companies need more sophisticated answers to deal with how to pay or continue incentives at lower cost, I think the tools we've used for companies in previous downturns, such as deferrals and the use of shares rather than cash, and the need to put in place attractive incentive schemes which pay for themselves in recovery situations, will again become relevant. In particular, we've been working with a number of private equity-owned companies to change their arrangements, where the fact that they use shares rather than cash to deliver long-term incentives gives rise to far more issues than with purely cash bonuses. Indeed, in the middle of last year, we held a webinar with our restructuring teams on how companies might react to the need to provide incentivising executive pay at a time of distress, and that's still available on our website. And what about quoted companies? For quoted companies or others with visible remuneration, whether visible to staff, investors or the media, the moon music of restraint and avoiding Wilmfield games will be important, although ESG factors continue to gain ground as an element of measured performance. As the Mars Group case demonstrated, the last three years have shown that anything can happen and that black swan events do happen more often than thought. This is affecting bonuses either by causing them to be payable when it is not thought they should be payable, or equally with targets not being met but a bonus still being merited. We know from the series of announcements that investor representative bodies made at the end of the year that investors will be attacking bonuses and long-term incentive payments that they feel are not merited or out of sync with cost of living concerns, which will well include arrangements which have met the legal terms which investors agreed when bonuses were awarded, but which, with the benefit of hindsight, have become inappropriate or too easy, and which investors expect to be overridden. 
This is particularly the case with some arrangements set in spring 2020, which are maturing in spring 2023 under three-year long-term incentive arrangements. While payments to executive directors are often the target of press and shareholder concern, often the plans they use are extended to executives on a much wider basis, and so far more employees than just the top team can be affected by these concerns about payouts. On a technical level, payment decisions here will often involve use of powers reserved under award terms to amend payouts using company discretion, which we talked about earlier, but 2023 could well see some development on the legislative front in terms of executive pay control if the 2023 pay season does not go well and executive pay becomes a burning political issue. Is there anything in particular for the financial services sector? Yes, we've been working with clients in the asset management area who are subject to the new IFPR regime. They've had to put in place a new remuneration structure and in many cases new remuneration arrangements for bonuses for years starting from 1st of January 2022. While much of the groundwork has already been done, this will be the first year that bonus payouts are subject to the new regime. And so with the devil in the implementation detail, a number of practical issues are coming up depending on the size of firms. In terms of what instruments should be used, malice and clawback terms, and more complicated issues like retention arrangements for the instruments used. The second thing is that while banks will be encouraged that the PRA and FCA are consulting on removing the bonus cap for their key staff, known as MRTs, The length of the consultation period means that bonuses this year and probably next year will still be caught by the existing regime. The break from the EU and the government's announcement that by the end of this year it will have reviewed all inherited EU rules, which are the background to much of the financial services pay rules, and made changes where appropriate is tantalising, but will much really change in the short term? And finally, Nicholas, is there anything changing on the tax front? Well, although anything might be announced in the March budget in a few weeks' time, the drop in the highest rate of tax outside Scotland from 45 to 40% was not in the end carried through, and this would probably have meant a mass deferral of bonuses to the new tax year with loads of resulting work for HR departments. But there are still some tax changes to take note of from April this year. First, in Scotland, the higher rates of tax will rise to 42% and 47% respectively. But the second change, which is national is that the threshold at which the top rate, so 47% in Scotland or 45% elsewhere in the UK, kicks in, will fall from £150,000 to just over £125,000. This could mean that accelerating bonuses into this tax year for affected employees might be helpful if you're a company that would normally pay bonuses in the April payroll, as it might save them some tax they would appreciate. And on that note, that brings us to the end of today's podcast. Thank you very much, Nicholas and Desiree, for joining us and giving us your expert insights into this topic. Thank you also to our listeners for continuing to tune in. You can access all of our previous episodes together with articles and insights on our very own Employment Law website, which is at www.employmentlawweb.com. If you have any questions on anything covered in this podcast, please do get in touch with me, Paul Reeves, Nicholas Stretch or Desiree DeLima or your usual Stevenson Harwood contact. Thank you very much for listening and goodbye.